From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Religion for Life, religionforlife.com. I'm John Schock. Let's get right to it. My guest today is one of the most interesting and fun scholars. He has two PhDs, one in theology and one in biblical studies. His name is Robert M. Price, and we are going to do a whirlwind conversation today about three of his recent books. The first is called The Historical Bejesus. What a long, strange quest it has been. The Amazing Colossal Apostle, The Search for the Historical Paul, and Preaching Deconstruction, Sermons Employing the Deconstructive Philosophy of Jacques Derrida and the Death of God Theology of Thomas J.J. Altizer. Robert M. Price, welcome to Religion for Life. Oh, it's great to be back. Thanks. All right. I'm glad to have you here. Uh, Let's start with Jesus. Uh, The historical Bejesus is a survey of the historical Jesus search since Albert Schweitzer. What fruit has come out of this quest? Well, in my opinion, which uh, few share, it's an embarrassment of riches. There have been so many uh, reconstructions of the historical Jesus in the last decades and, uh, well, maybe longer since Schweitzer, that are all uh, pretty plausible and reasonable, just uh, depending on what you think the state of the evidence is. Like, what are the authentic words and deeds of Jesus, if any? Um, There are people like N.T. Wright and other uh, evangelical apologists who try pretty much to get people to believe that the pre-critical scholars of the Bible were right, that it's all accurate and, and so forth. Though even if you said that, you would still have a lot of differences, or some anyway, but between this and that sketch of Jesus' motivation and such. But uh, most scholars in this field, and by that I mean like publishing scholars who do articles and books, seem to admit that it's uh, not easy to determine what Jesus may actually have said and done, and they offer various criteria themselves Um, matters of dispute, Uh, but you have to to have some criteria to separate the wheat from the chaff, and it's not that clear, and so you you have different resultant databases and different Jesus reconstructions based on them, and uh, they're they're all uh, capable and uh, ingenious and competent scholars who do this, but uh, it's just uh, the evidence is not that clear either what it means. I mean, there's another biggie. Uh, what does kingdom of God mean? And what did Jesus mean by his his extreme sounding ethics? How do you take them? Uh, Schweitzer had one way. Uh, uh, those who espouse a cynic Jesus have others, etc. It's just uh, an embarrassment of riches. It could mean a lot of things, and therefore it's difficult to know which one, if any, is correct. Well, you had, uh, I think, over 20 different pictures, I think, in your book of, mm-hmm. of, of, and of there portraits. there are more. Of, and there are more than that. So mm-hmm. uh, for, from your perspective, um, is, is the Jesus, as we find him in the Gospels, uh, I guess both in the Bible, then he got outside the Bible too, a composite of historical characters or wish fulfillment or, or what? 
Uh, both. I think that uh, I espouse the uh, Christ myth theory as what seems to me the most plausible interpretation, though it, it's not dogma. There's no way to know. But I tend to think there was no one historical Jesus. But as you anticipate, various parts of the story are probably borrowed from uh, even unwittingly uh, from uh, from figures contemporary with the ostensible time of Jesus, like the passion narrative of Jesus, there are features of it that look so astonishingly like uh, the uh, episodes involving Jesus, Ben, Ananias, a prophet predicting the destruction of Jerusalem who was hauled before the Roman procurator and flogged, but would answer not a word, and eventually, though let go, he perished during the siege of Jerusalem, as he had predicted. There, The, uh, the uh, entry of uh, Simon Bargioris into the temple to cleanse it of the zealots who had occupied it, and the, the uh, procession that uh, he was given for that, the palm leaves and all that, so much like the triumphal entry, the uh, the signs at the crucifixion and the, the mourning women uh, who, who uh, attended uh, this, the, um, the uh, crucifixion of uh, uh, Cleomenes, the uh, radical Spartan king. There are several things that look, uh, to me, a little too much like uh, the 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 story of Jesus, and then there are loads of mythic parallels, dying and rising god religions uh, of Attis, Adonis, Baal, Osiris, Hercules, etc., that we know uh, were not only in the same neighborhood, but known by Jews who were not necessarily hostile to them. Uh, then there are such similarities between Jesus in the Gospels and Elijah, Elisha, David, Moses, Joshua, that even the word wording in certain stories looks like it was just taken right out of the Greek translation of the Old Testament that I think, yeah, you've got a lot of mythic, literary, and historical characters or features thereof that have come together uh, in the picture of Jesus. Now, there could have been a historical Jesus, but it just seems to me what's the most likely reading of the evidence, and there's no definitive one. Uh, it's uh, certainly, I've not, I wouldn't dare claim, oh yeah, uh, Burton Mack and uh, and uh, David Seeley and John Dominic Cross and, and all these guys are just flat wrong and its obvious price is the prophet of truth. It'll be absurd. Uh, and I don't think any of them would say much uh, more either. So, you know, what's, it's a very foggy thing. And maybe Bultmann and the gang were right decades ago when they said, well, you can't really know much about a historical Jesus, but uh, maybe you're supposed to reckon with the Christ of faith instead. That kind of makes a lot of sense to me. Well, um, how would you date um, the Gospels? And, and, and how did the Jesus tradition begin, do you think? I mean, if, if he is uh, mostly a, comp a literary composite, how did that get going? Well, it seems to me that, uh, for one thing, the, the date of the Gospels almost doesn't matter because when people think it does, they are trying to measure a longer or preferably shorter distance between the Gospels and uh, the man behind them. If uh, mythicism mm. is anywhere near the mark, you, you can't start with uh, between 4 and 6 BCE, as they say, uh, before Herod's death and so on. The bottom drops out of the thing. Thing, and you're looking at a slow, evolu possibly slow evolutionary process where uh, different currents of, of ancient Israelite religion and 
contemporary mystery religions of dying and rising gods, stories from hero cults, from Apollonius of Tyana, from uh, gods like uh, Osiris. All of this stuff may have just uh, been tributaries feeding into this stream. Uh, the name Jesus, Yahweh is salvation, may simply represent the idea that he was in a, one of many theophanies of Jehovah. I mean, that's possible. So I think it was a gradual stream and started once you had a Jesus uh, figure uh, as as a divine entity who appeared on earth perhaps, but had uh, given his life in the same way the Gnostic man of light had done uh, up in the uh, the higher uh, heavens, the concentric heavens they believed in, and that uh, gradually the, uh, the, the Gnostics and the emergent Catholics and perhaps others decided they needed to claim a historical Jesus in order to get the copyright on who has the true Christianity. And uh, this would account for different datings of Jesus we find uh, between the Talmud and, uh, and uh, Irenaeus and uh, Luke and so forth. As you needed a founder who was not too far behind you in history because you wanted to be able to say, yeah, you can shake the hand that shook the hand. Uh, the guys that taught our bishops got it right from the horse's mouth. And as you went later in history, you had to move Jesus up to, to maintain the same relative distance. Uh, so I think once you had a historicized Jesus for purposes of theological authority, then people began to uh, create these various stories about him, not out of thin air, not out of whole cloth, but but out of the stories of other heroes, gods, and saviors. Uh, so uh, I do think, however, you can discern dates for the Gospels, and I tend to think uh, Mark is written around the end of the first century, partly because of uh, in tree rings in it, where you can see successive delays of the parousia, the second coming of Christ, if, if the church is embarrassed like Harold Camping's followers were and continue to push it off, <laughs> well, that takes uh, a lot of uh, time up. I think Matthew, who who essentially produced a, a beefed-up version of Mark, um, Matthew and Luke and John were probably close to the middle of the second century. Uh, usually, scholars of all stripes say, well, they, they go with the earliest possible dates, assuming there was a historical Jesus, and, and for them that's good enough. And, and I think, well, wait a minute, uh, where do we really have any evidence that people were reading these texts? And I don't think you have it until Irenaeus, uh, writing around 180 CE or AD. So uh, I see uh, internal evidence makes me think the Gospels had not appeared very long before that. If you are just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Robert M. Price, and we're talking about uh, three of his books, The Historical Bejesus, What a Long, Strange Quest It Has Been, and the second one is The Amazing Colossal Apostle, The Search for the Historical Paul. So let's go to Paul next. Now, I learned that there were 13 letters attributed to him uh, in the New Testament. Six were pseudo-Paul, and seven were by scholarly consensus, uh, the historical Paul, uh, with some interpolations, and were written in the 50s. Acts is a second century fiction that tells us nothing of the historical figure of Paul. How do you evaluate that? 
Well, I have uh, surprised myself in recent years by coming around to a view I once considered as crazy as I considered the Christ myth theory, and that is the theory of Bruno Bauer, W.C. von Manen, and others belonging to the Dutch radicals, uh, as they were called, the school of Dutch radical criticism. These people followed F.C. Bauer, who in the 19th century argued that by comparisons between the various epistles, whoever wrote most of Romans, let's say one, chapters 1 through 14, 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Galatians could not have written all the rest of them. Now, Schleiermacher and others had already said, I don't think he wrote the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, but uh, the rest, the, most people thought, Paul had written, but Bauer said, no, no, there, there are gaping contradictions here. It's not surprising that more than just uh, the pastoral epistles were written in Paul's name. I mean, it's pretty common. The, the various uh, epistles attributed to Plato and Socrates that you can tell were not written by them, but people wrote in the name of the great people of the past. Uh, well, so uh, what uh, von Manen and the others said was, you know, I, I hate to point this out, but if you use the same criteria you have used to disqualify First uh, and Second Thessalonians, Philippians, uh, Ephesians, Colossians, etc., uh, you really can't claim that even those four principal epistles, as F.C. Bauer called them, were written by the same person, or even that any one of them had a single author, because there are odd stops and loops and uh, aporias and so on in these texts that indicate we're reading a kind of a patchwork here, like uh, the form critics said about the Gospels. They're sort of uh, long strings with a bunch of pearls that don't exactly fit together. And uh, once you start looking at the epistles in that light, you begin to think, wait a minute, is it true that uh, women can prophesy and pray in public, as it says in one part of 1 Corinthians, or that they can't, as it says in another? Is it true that uh, eating meat offered to idols is really uh, to be avoided because you're offering it to demons? Or, as in the adjacent chapter, that there's really nothing to it, but some weak Christians might be offended, so don't. I mean, these are very different ideas, and, and von Manen especially. Uh, who started to write to refute all of this and, and came to be won over, he said, yeah, we're dealing with patchworks in the name of, of this Paul. And he figured there was a substratum in Acts that indicated that, yeah, there was some itinerant missionary named Paul, but and he was so big that people began to attribute writings to him, just as all mainstream scholars say is true of Peter. There are two epistles in the New Testament attributed to him that if the poor is at all accurate that he was an uneducated Galilean fisherman. He couldn't have written this kind of Greek. Uh, and then there are at least two more outside of the canon and loads of apocalypses and acts and gospels attributed to Peter. Uh, and most scholars say, who aren't just axe grinding apologists, say, no, people just wrote all this stuff in his name because it was a big name. Well, then why is it out of the question that the same may have happened with Paul, the mere possibility isn't proof, but that's not really where the theory comes from. It's a way of trying to deal with the contradictions with which the Pauline epistles are teeming. And I think it makes a lot 
better sense if you start to deconstruct the the epistles. Well, this looks like it was written by a Gnostic, this by a Catholic, this by a Marcionite, and so forth. So I think we we know very little about Paul. And uh, there are big clues that Paul is the same character vilified in early Christianity as Simon Magus. Uh, and uh, that's another story, but uh, I think Paul is practically as elusive as Jesus to the historian. So that's what I was just going to ask. Was there an historical Paul, or is he as shadowy as Jesus? And it sounds like uh, maybe he is. And so these these letters attributed to him, as well as all the other stuff, apocalypses and acts of Paul and Thecla and whatever, are, are, are written um, kind of by layers of different groups. So you might have the letter of, I don't know what, Galatians, let's say, and that might be a, a m- bunch of different folks kind of writing the letter first and, and and within the letter itself contradicting it yes for instance i think that uh well i'm not the first by any means to say galatians was not written by paul but i think that uh the uh let's say uh chapters three through six were very likely actually written by marcion the great uh, pauline so-called heretic of the early second century and that uh the first two chapters are a subsequent addition by a marcionite seeking to refute the view of paul promoted in the canonical acts of the apostles and that someone along the line has interpolated various items to make the Catholic side of the debate, Tertullian, for example, um, more able to use Galatians in the defense of orthodoxy. So I, I think, yeah, we've got a, an original work of four chapters, a subsequent preface of two chapters, and then sprinkled interpolations. And various scholars have said this. I'm just sort of putting them together, I guess. But yeah, that's a great example. Uh, as Walter Schmidtholz, uh, who believed Paul had written the whole of First and Second Corinthians, even he said this is so incoherent that someone must have done what they're doing with the Dead Sea Scrolls, taking a bunch of postage stamp fragments and trying to put them together in some way, and there was no easy way to do it. Because you got to come up with some way of explaining why there are these gaping contradictions. Uh, my uh, professor, Daryl Dowdy at Drew University, put it well when he said, that most commentaries on the epistles are taken up with trying to explain how the heck point A could ever have led to point B and then to C, and you build up these elaborate lattices of, well, Paul could have been thinking this. There's also decades-long debates over what is the center of Pauline theology. Nobody can be sure of that either, and that's because there's a whole lot of different views there. Well, like, uh, for example, Romans 9 through 11 uh, of Paul's uh, understanding of what will happen to the Jews, it's a pretty confusing passage there. Yeah, I think that uh, we have three different views there. The most uh, debated section of it is where Paul appears to teach individual predestination, a la Augustine and Calvin, and I think he does. And then the surrounding parts where he says in one place, whoever this Paul is, right, that uh, that God has washed his hands of the Jewish people and that the destruction of the temple, I think implicit in the discussion, shows that, that their time is over. And then there is another one that mitigates that. It says, oh, 
no, no. Uh, okay, they're sidelined for the moment, but when the full number of Gentiles come in, then you'll see them jump on the bandwagon too. I don't think anybody has ever been able to harmonize this, and for the good reason that they say very different things, and that someone didn't like, some scribe didn't like this one or that one, and decided to mitigate it with another viewpoint. Uh, often that's what scribes did. They didn't dare take away sacred texts, so they just added other stuff to give you a, a different perspective. Well, it looks like he's saying God's washed the sands of the Jews, but you read further, it looks like he hasn't, so I guess I'll go with that. And uh, th that's a great one. And another odd thing about that, uh, Marcion's version of the uh, of the Epistle of the Romans lacked 9 through 11, and uh, though he didn't point this out as far as we know, von Manen pointed out that uh, the, the rest of Romans virtually always speaks of the Jews, but instead in 9 through 11, it's always Israel. Now, why would the, the author just flip over like that? And there's a bunch of these interlocking, converging arguments that indicate that just like the Pentateuch could not have been written by a single Moses, no individual Pauline epistle can, can really be by a, a single Paul, if any of them uh, were, had any of his input. On, on Religion for Life, my guest is Robert M. Price, the author of The uh, Historical Bejesus, What a Long Strange Quest It Has Been, The Amazing Colossal Apostle, The Search for the Historical Paul, and we're going to talk about a third book. We're going to get them all in. Uh, this, so, so Jesus is a myth. Paul is a myth. What's a preacher to preach? Uh, preaching Deconstruction is a collection of your own sermons that you preached in church. How did that turn out for you? Well, it wasn't too long before I split off and had a s small congregation in my home for the next six years. Uh, <laughs> there were all kinds of, uh, oh, church politics and yeah. uh, uh, fiscal crises and all that. The church is not even around anymore today. But but uh, I, this was a fairly liberal congregation. Uh, its uh, pastor had been Harry Emerson Fosdick decades before I got there. Uh, and they, they were sort of broad-minded, but uh, I think uh, they didn't really like the, the essentially humanistic and non-theistic direction I was headed in. Some people liked the sermons. It's hard to tell. I don't get a whole lot of feed, didn't get a whole lot of feedback from them, but uh, I had certain hearers or readers that liked them a lot, and I thought, well, what the heck? This is what I felt I could do and had to do once I believed in, let's say, the, the death of God, uh, and like Allah Nietzsche and Altizer and so on. And I think it's a uh, a helpful way to open up scripture, which certainly remains very powerful. I'm not some uh, tin-eared atheist that uh, says, oh, it's just a lot of bunk. You might as well be reading the phone book or mind conf. That's nonsense. It is very powerful, and I can't help thinking that's not just an illusion. The, the power of it does not depend on whether certain stories in it are historically accurate or who wrote anything, or even what they were trying to get at at some points. There, there are various elements that Derrida's deconstruction technique opens up that I think allows these texts to speak in a, a whole new way. 
well, that's what I like about you, an atheist, uh, but but likes religion and is willing to put the critical tools to it, uh, which which I find fascinating. The, uh, the uh, Of course, the subtitle of your book is Sermons Employing the Deconstructive Philosophy of Jacques Derrida and the Death of God Theology of Thomas J.J. Altizer. So given Derrida and Altizer, how do you use the texts and the symbols of the tradition? What's, what's the role of preaching from ancient texts? I think basically it is uh, Socratic uh, in that you, like Kierkegaard said, it's so unwittingly arrogant, and I uh, do say unwittingly, for preachers to get up there and say, I am the herald of Almighty God, and because I'm quoting from this book and expounding on it, this is the Word of God to you. No, that's just Uh ridiculous. Ridiculous, even if it were divinely inspired, it's so ambiguous, uh, as as you know, fundamentalist commentaries will often even admit without recognizing the implications that you just don't dare say, oh yeah, this is the way it is. But maybe that's uh, not the point. I think uh, the role is more like Socrates to say, uh, let me suggest some things you may never have thought of, uh, but let me let the Bible suggest them. Not only the Bible, but uh, I want. I figure everybody is or ought to be on their own quest, making their own synthesis of thought and religion and so forth. And if I can, tr- if I can uh, help them in their synthesis by bringing resources they didn't know about, uh, that and I'd feel my scholarly job is that too. I don't want to make disciples. What a ludicrous notion! I, I want to help people in their own uh, synthesis and their own quest. And I think preaching does that. You you preach that way and people will say, wow, what do you know? You might, if you're lucky, have the reaction of the Emmaus disciples. Uh, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened the scriptures? That doesn't mean, uh, wasn't it great to be brainwashed? Aren't you glad to be told <laughs> what to do or to think? No, no. Uh, it, it's like, uh, it's sort of like the old personal savior thing where fundamentalist preachers say, you know, God has no grandchildren. You have to be born again. Well, yeah, I mean, for it to mean anything, uh, it's got to come from you and not be inherited. And so uh, if you can prompt people to have a sort of Zen-like experience, like, wow, I never thought of that. Now now that I have, I'm going to have to look at myself and things differently. So that's what I aim for. Well, I really like the sermons. In fact, I used one of them in a sermon I I recently preached. It was uh, reprinted in the Jesus Seminars magazine, The Fourth R. Uh, You call it The Holiness of Desolation. Did you choose that one for the magazine? Yeah. yeah, Well, no, actually what happened there was I sent a copy of the book to Robert Miller, who edits it, an old pal of mine from the seminar, and uh, he uh, liked it and said that would put a review in. And he said, uh, there are about uh, four or five of these I'd like to run in the magazine. I said, Great. And so this is the first of a few. I was really thrilled to uh, see that somebody picked up on there being a spiritual and not merely intellectual dimension to this. And he did, so they asked, and I said yes. So would you preach these sermons today, or have you moved past them? Some of these involve God language that I probably wouldn't use now, but then again, I am not so important that, uh, that uh, like a political candidate, Trump changed his view on this, Hillary changed his view. Yes, so what? Uh, you, you should mm-hmm. get what you can out of what any of them said at any point, if there is anything. So I figure uh, if these sermons have anything to offer anybody, they don't have to agree with me, and I don't have to 
keep up to date on pricey and orthodoxy. What a joke that would be. <laughs> well, one of the great things about him that has to do with the deconstruction, just take a second with that, is that you're really talking about um, uh, texts, uh, texts as text, and it, it speaks to us, and we just have to engage it. There's, there's nobody behind there telling us what um, the text means. It's up to us. That's what I got a lot of reading your of reading the sermons, but I'm sure there's more than that. Well, that is right. Uh, the that is what I I feel like. We don't know what the author intended of any text, uh, in many ways. I remember hearing Stephen King talk about uh, what he was trying to get across in his early novel Carrie, and I thought, son of a gun, this guy doesn't know what his own book means. I I thought it was ridiculous to suggest such a thing, but to me, it was so clear what he was trying to get across. I, I guess the text does speak for itself, and, and you might as well admit it. You can't call up Paul or bring Shirley MacLaine in here to channel him <laughs> or something. Uh, anything you do to reconstruct Pauline theology or the author's intent is going to be a, a subjective reconstruction of your own anyway. You can't get past that text, so let it speak, not, not as a middleman between you and some authority you can never recover. Robert M. Price has been my guest on Religion for Life. Uh, three new books, The Amazing Colossal Apostle, The Historical Bejesus, and Preaching Deconstruction, fairly new within the last couple of years or so. Find out uh, more about him at robertmprice.mindvendor.com. Uh, thank you again, uh, Professor Price. This was great to have you on. It is always great to be with you, John. Thank you. You've been listening to Religion for Life. I'm John Shuck. Find links to podcasts and other wonderful treasures at religionforlife.com. Religion for Life is produced by KBOO Portland. Be well.